Well, I didn't grow up going to church. My family would go on an occasion uh, randomly. It wasn't like the Christmas and Easter. It was just kind of like, I don't know, we're having money problems. Let's go to church. Like we kind of went on random occasions. So when I was a sophomore in high school and Jesus saved me, uh, the whole thing about Bible and faith and following Jesus was brand new to me. I didn't have any grid for any of that. And uh, it wasn't long after that I became a Christian that my church was hosting this event for high school students, kind of like a weekend retreat uh, to kind of study the Bible and learn how it applies to your life. And so I thought, that's probably something I should go to. But because I didn't grow up in this setting, I didn't know anybody at my church. I didn't know any of the students that were going on this thing. So I show up, and it was just a bunch of sophomores and juniors in high school, and there was only one other guy there. It was just a bunch of girls, uh, sophomores and junior girls. And I thought, man... If this is the only other guy here, the odds are ever in my favor. (laughs) This is an incredible moment here. And everything was going well until I remember we, we, uh, we shared a bunk together that night, me and the other guy. And I'm thinking, now this is crazy. I don't know this guy. He doesn't know me. And all of a sudden, I'm in a bunk with him all night. Like, I have my stuff kind of close to me. I'm like, I'm not sure who he is, what he's going to do to me. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the lights out, with a complete stranger in here. And so we go to bed that night, and the lights are turned off, and I'm staring up at the ceiling, super uncomfortable with this complete stranger I'm sharing a bunk with. And about 15 minutes go by, and all of a sudden I hear this guy say, hey, man. I go, yeah. And he goes, you like marijuana? I look back, I I said, I don't know what you're asking. (laughs) Like, I was just like, I'm so wigged out. I don't don't know what you're asking. He goes, well, isn't there a place in the Bible where it says, thou shalt smoke my herb? (laughs) I am not kidding. This really happened. (laughs) And I was sitting there and I said, hey, listen, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know anything about the Bible or faith, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't say that in the Bible. Like, I'm pretty sure we're like, we can venture there, right? (laughs) I think about that story often as I kind of go through my life, and and here's why. Because what he was trying to do is something that I'm trying to do all the time, trying to justify myself. I'm trying to find some way to make something right. Right? And I'm not trying to psychoanalyze where the question was coming from or what was going on in his life, but I dare say now on this side of it, as I look back, there was probably something inside of him, at least I know there is something inside of me when I do this, that you're trying to make yourself right. right? Trying to make yourself right. I'll find a Bible verse. I'll find something that can like, tell me that everything's okay the way I want it to go. Right? And see, the thing that all of us have in common in here today is a desire to be righteous. Even the most non-religious, God-hating person wants to be righteous. Every one of us wants to be. Here's a simple definition of what it is to be righteous. To pass the inspection. To, to, to be seen as acceptable, as pleasing. To, to be seen as um, endorsable, right? Every one of us want to be righteous. Every one of us have a common desire. This explains why we do so much of what we do. Why you talk the way you talk. Why you dress the way you dress. Why you have friends that you have. Why you go the places that you go. Who, who you associate with and why you associate with them. This is why we respond with anger or shame or embarrassment when someone comes against us or points out a character flaw. No, I promise it's not like that. Why? Why do we get defensive? Because maybe they're making an accusation that I'm not righteous 
and we fear their right. So now defensiveness happens. It's why we spend so much trying to cover up what we don't want other people to see when they call it out. Or when we think they might call it out, we will often respond back with a reason why it's not true. We even get defensive and manipulating conversations when we think someone might think something of us, we're going to go ahead and get out in front of that and prove to them why it's not true. <laughs> right? Why? Because we want to be righteous. We want to be seen as righteous. Every one of us has a set of eyes that you're trying to impress. Every one of us. There is someone in your life, there's a set of eyes that you're trying to impress. A righteousness that you're trying to patch together to present yourself to the world. But here's what I like to argue, at least as I own, search my own soul, and I don't think I'm too far different. What I'd like to argue is that behind what you think is a desire to have the approval of someone else is actually a deeper desire behind that desire, and it's an unmet desire of having the approval of God. So I'll cover over the fact that I fear I don't have God's approval, and I'll just now spend my life trying to win the approval of all the people around me, and that's going to assure me that what I fear isn't true might not just be as true, uh, untrue as I think it is, because I have all their approval, then, so then surely God approves of me too, right? If the world claps for me, then surely God claps for me. And so many of you know what it's like, though, to lay your head on the pillow at night, having the applause of people around you. You might have promotions and raises and all kinds of friends. You know what it's like to have life going well, and yet at the same time, you fear the eyes of God. What does God think of me, though? What's happening with God's disposition toward me? And we fear that it's one of disapproval. We fear being exposed. There's a righteousness from God that we recognize that we're without left to ourselves. We're without it. And so this is exactly what Jesus is getting at. This is exactly what he's dealing with in the verses that we read at the beginning of our time together. He's talking here in the Sermon on the Mount about the true righteousness of the kingdom of God, right? So as we anchor down into this text, there's three questions I want us to explore and try to answer today. The first one is this, what is the demand of the kingdom? What is the demand of the kingdom? What is the righteous demand of the kingdom? That's question one. The second question is, well, how do we satisfy the demand? Can the demand be satisfied? If so, how do we satisfy it? And then the last question is, okay, so then how does this translate to us? Like, what does this mean for my life right now, right? So what's the demand? How can we satisfy it? And how does this translate? Let's get to the first one. What's the demand as we look at this passage, here's some, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to read it backwards. As I study the passage this week, Jesus is developing an argument through, in 17 through 20, and it became clearer and clearer to me as I studied this week that starting at the bottom line and tracing the argument back to the top um, made sense to me in how to understand this passage. So I want to start with verse 20 and then work our way back up to 17. So let's look at the bottom line with the answer to the question, what's the demand of the kingdom Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if you feel the full weight of this statement as it's meant to be felt. 
Like this is a massive thing that Jesus just said. What Jesus just said would have raised all kinds of eyebrows upon that original audience. It would have raised all kinds of eyebrows. People would have gasped when he said this. It was an offensive statement 2,000 years ago as he sat on that hillside. And it's an offensive statement even today. This is an offensive statement. Here's what he's saying. Remember what's happening in this sermon, what he's trying to do. He's gone up on this hillside, right? And he sat down and he's began to teach as one with authority. He's being pictured there and they would have seen, this is a fulfillment. He's the greater Moses. He's leading us in a greater, a greater rescue from a greater slavery. This is a greater exodus. This is the moment that fulfills all moments in redemptive history. They would have seen that, understood that by the way he sat where he sat and taught as he taught. He goes down from there and he opens his mouth and he gives this string of kingdom blessings. The Beatitudes, we talked about them last week. And the people who received these blessings were his disciples, and it says the crowds. The crowds were all kinds of people who would have otherwise been cast out from anything to do with the religious order of the day. Because of their manner of life, because of their illnesses, because of their diseases, uh, because of maybe demon possession, they would have been cast out. God has nothing to do with you. You can never inherit the kingdom anyways. Don't even try. They would have been cast out. And this is who's receiving the kingdom blessings Jesus is giving. They're all of a sudden being brought in. They were outcasted by religious elites, but Jesus is bringing them in. He's blessing people, and he's blessing qualities of life that no one would have called blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted and who are cut off. He's blessing people and qualities of life that no one in their right mind would call blessed. And so what's going on here? He even goes so far as to call them, and you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, title that only God himself would possess. What is Jesus doing? What's going on is Jesus had already acquired a following because of the healings that he had been performing. And now he's announcing the kingdom in a way that would have sounded to everyone present that day that he was declaring an all-out war on the religious order of his day. And he was. But not in the way that they thought he was. In receiving the outcast as he was, in teaching the way that he was, it wasn't to overthrow or to destroy or to discredit all that had been passed down to them in Jewish law, though that's how it would have sounded to many of them until they got down to verse 20. And then he says, you have no business inheriting the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Until this moment, you could have probably imagined like a rumbling in the crowd going, he's here, he's vindicating us, a militant sort of revolutionary spirit rising up, and then he says that, and all of a sudden, the high fives begin to like drop. <laughs> they start putting their hands back in their tunics, right? They're like, I don't know what to do with this. If you're new to the Bible, scribes and Pharisees were the religious elite of their day. Think of them as like the monks or the Amish of their day. They lived in tightly ordered communities. They lived strictly ordered lives. They had a saying in Jesus' day, it was a kind of a common cultural idiom, where they would say, if there's only two people who go to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. They were seen as like righteous elite in their day. 
No one can achieve what they've achieved. Everything they said, everything they wore, everything they ate, everything about their life was rigidly compliant with the Mosaic law, hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations. And so anybody hearing what Jesus just said would have felt deflated. How in the world do you expect me to do that? This is impossible. No one can achieve this. No one can accomplish this. It sounded almost as though Jesus was flattening the way they understood the kingdom righteousness of God until he says this, and then they find he's just raised the righteousness of God. Whatever standards they felt like were present there, and like, oh, but we're now getting blessings. Maybe it actually is more attainable. Then he says this and raises it on a whole another level. Jesus is talking about a righteousness that exceeds outward appearance. He's talking about a righteousness that goes beyond religious behavioral modifications. He's talking about a kind of righteousness that doesn't just appear on the outside to have godliness, but a righteousness that has an inward life to match it. He's talking about a kind of righteousness that has a deep soul-level peace with the law of God. And this is the demand of the kingdom. Okay, so I want to step back and just say, I don't know how you're hearing this, <laughs> but if you're tracking with this, if you're really cluing into what Jesus is saying here, then we're out. Like, I'm, if, if this is where it lands, I'm not even sure why we've gathered here today. It's of no use, right? We're out. We can't attain this. This is impossible. No one can do this. I don't have to spend time in this sermon convincing you that you're not perfect. <laughs> you know that. You've, you, you feel that. You're aware of that at practical levels. You can't be perfect. You aren't perfect. You could never be perfect right? I don't have to convince you of that. So now we say, well, surely Jesus can't mean this, <laughs> right? Like surely there's an asterisk around verse 20 somewhere. Like surely we're waiting to go, okay, you're, now you've got my attention, Jesus. Now soften it for me so I can live the rest of my life, right? Where's the loophole? Well, let's get to the second question. That's the demand of the kingdom, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, how does, this, how does the demand get satisfied? Can it be satisfied? Look at verse 19, traveling backwards. It says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. As if to say, you're not welcome there. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so I, I always love pointing out passages like this because this is a really hard passage. This is a really hard verse. And not because it's hard to understand because it's really easy to understand. It's really clear what Jesus is saying. It's just difficult to know what the heck to do with it, right? I can't do anything with it. Like, that's how it's supposed to make us feel. That's what we feel. If you were to have a righteousness that is acceptable and pleasing to God, Jesus is saying, if you're really able to receive the blessings of his kingdom and live as salt and light, then you have to keep the whole law and don't relax a single command or diminish a single one. So there's no loophole. <laughs> like, keep the whole law. 
So what felt impossible with verse 20, now we get to the how-to of verse 19, and it just got more impossible. <laughs> right? Like, this is the train of thought. Now, here's where I want to pause for a second, because I know we're a church that, like, has a high view of God's grace. And so don't tune out with me here and just go, okay, I'm going to tune out and get to the Jesus juke at the end to tell me how it's okay, right? Don't do that. Like, just hang with me here and sit in this for a second. Here's why I say that. You and I live in a moment where what we want to do is we want to emphasize the love and the grace of God, the inclusivity of God, to the neglect of God's authority. Right? God is loving. God is gracious. It's all okay. He has no authority. So what we think is weird in our cultural moment is when someone takes obeying God seriously. Why do you obey? He's got grace for that. Just do what you want, and Jesus forgives you on the back end. That's the beautiful whole thing of this. Like that's the predominant message of our cultural moment. But for the Jews who were listening to Jesus, they took the authority of God so seriously that thinking there would be a space where obedience to God was optional or relaxed would have been blasphemous. They were on the other end. For them, they would look at us and the way that we emphasize grace to the neglect of God's authority like we're crazy. They would say, why do you need grace if you can relax and, and diminish one of the commands? That's not grace. That's rebellion. <laughs> you, you don't need grace for that. You just don't do it. If he doesn't have authority, then why does his grace even matter? It's not authoritative grace. You can't actually trust it. You can't have grace without authority. That's what makes grace so meaningful. So now I can hear the reactions because they're my own reactions when I was studying this week. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, we're New Testament people though, right? So like the Old Testament doesn't like have effect anymore because that's like Old Testament. We're like New Testament. We're on this side of the resurrection. So we don't deal with the Old Testament anymore. We'll get to fulfillment in a second. But I want you to hear this because this stung me this week just considering this. Not keeping and obeying the commands of God because they've been fulfilled is entirely different than not keeping the commands of God because you don't like them, because you disagree with them, because you don't think they're important or they don't matter. That's not honor. The other is honor, right? The other is honor. And so for most of us, it's actually not the Old Testament laws that we have a problem with. We like to think it is. We sort of, you know, distance ourselves or deflect to, to put the issue over there. Our problems are actually with the New Testament commands. <laughs> when Jesus speaks up about sex and about money and about uh, forgiving those who have hurt you, like those are the commands we have a problem with, and those are New Testament things, Right? We like to just think that if it's invasive and it makes you uncomfortable, well, it's probably Old Testament. I don't have to deal with that, right? It's actually not true. Okay, but seriously, you're thinking, what about the law? Because there's all kinds of crazy stuff back there, right? Like if you've read some of the Old Testament and the first five books of the Bible, you're on, there's some crazy stuff in there. You can't be telling me I have to keep all of it and not relax any of it or I can't get into heaven. You can't be possibly telling me that. At worst, some of those things are hateful, and at best, they're just archaic and outdated. You, you can't be serious. Okay, so through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Deuteronomy, there are 613 commands. 
613 commands. Scholars have been helpful to show that there are sort of three categories for the Old Testament law. There's the civil law. This was the law that was given to Israel to govern them as a set-apart nation, a people meant to be a light to the nations, a civil law. And then there was a ceremonial law. This was the law that was to order the worship of Israel. This is where we get things like sacrifices and temples and priests. And then the third category was the moral law, laws that were given to reflect God's character. These are most pictured in the Ten Commandments, laws that help us figure out how to live with each other, right? What's good for life together. And so you hear that and you go, there's no way I could keep 613 laws and keep all of that straight. There is no way I could do that. You're right. (laughs) You're right. You failed. I failed. And Israel before us failed repeatedly. And that's precisely the point. Did you just say that failure was the point? Yes. Yes. God never gave us his law with the intention of us stopping at the law. The law was given to us that it might lead us to him and bring us to the end of ourselves, throwing ourselves onto him, saying, I can't keep my life together. Will you hold me together? The law was meant to bring us to that point. This is why Jesus says in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, but it's the scriptures that bear witness of me. Notice what Jesus says there. God didn't give us his word for us to land on the word. God gave us his word that we would come from the word and be pointed to him. You're never going to get a clearer picture of God than in the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures lift you from themselves and point you toward God himself. The law was given to get us to Jesus. Now, traveling backward to the top, let's get to verse 17 and hear what Jesus says about himself and why he came. Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Old Testament scriptures. He says, I haven't come to abolish them. He's so serious about not abolishing the Old Testament scriptures and making sure they stand that he actually says it twice, right? I'm not coming to relax any of that stuff, but I'm coming to fulfill it. So Jesus has come to fulfill the law, to complete it, to bring it to a fuller sense, to satisfy the righteous requirements for all who would look to him. And this is our hope. This is why we sang songs at the front end of the service. This is why we have assurance after confessing our sins. This is why we do what we do, because Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And so here's how he did it. He did it in two ways. The first way Jesus fulfilled the law is he kept it perfectly. He kept it perfectly down to the letter. This is what he's saying in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that was the smallest letter in their alphabet, and not a dot, he's talking about <laughs> like the smallest stroke of the pen on the smallest letter in their alphabet. Not until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest part of God's word will pass until all is accomplished. So what Jesus is saying is this. <laughs> Not only is God's word true and all of his law true, not only is it true, it will all be accomplished. It will all come to pass. His word will be fulfilled in exactly the way he says it will be fulfilled. Not a single letter, not the smallest part of a single letter is there by accident. This is God's very word to us, right? 
And so Jesus fulfilled the law in the first way by keeping it perfectly obeyed it. Not just in letter, but even the spirit of it. Okay, but he also fulfilled the law in a second way. Track with me. He fulfilled the law in the second way that he paid the due penalty of the law for lawbreakers. So do you hear this? So there's only actually two ways you can fulfill a law, and lawyers know this, right? Um, if you're a lawyer in the room, there's even local civic laws. You either keep the law, or if you break the law, you pay the penalty for the law, right? Jesus did both. <laughs> he fulfilled the law perfectly, and then he put himself forward as a substitute to pay the due penalty for lawbreakers. This is the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He kept the law perfectly. Why? So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So now, what about the law? What about those civil, ceremonial, moral laws? The civil law, remember? It was given to Israel as a nation to govern them, to be a people set apart in a holy priesthood as a light to the nations. They failed. But Jesus fulfills the law by being truly set apart and becomes the perfect high priest, and he is the light to the world who invites people from all nations to receive his righteousness. And so we no longer keep the civil law from the Old Testament because we obey Jesus as the people of God from every nation. What about the ceremonial law? Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system as the great high priest who didn't just make an offering for our sins. He himself became the offering so that we don't go to a temple to deal with our sins. We go to him whose sacrifice was good once and for all time. Jesus says, you don't go to a place to deal with your sins. You come to me so I can lock you in the eye and you can see and hear my voice. You are forgiven. It is finished. What about the moral law? Jesus fulfilled the moral law pure in heart, pure in body, pure in mind, pure in deed. He is our example. He's our perfect example in life, in faith, and in purity. And the moral law is still binding today. And here's what's beautiful about it. Because he fulfilled the law, we don't carry out the moral commands of the Ten Commandments in order to gain righteousness. We seek to the Ten Commandments to be formed in righteousness because he's already declared us righteous. You don't follow Jesus to get something from Jesus. You follow Jesus because you've already got all of him. Isn't that beautiful? So now you're just formed by him. There's no strings attached. There's nothing to gain. There's no investment to get something back on. You just have all of it. Now be formed by all of what you have. And so now, the last question, how, how does this translate to us today? Right? You're going, okay, Chad, great. Theological, biblical study lesson today. What does this mean for my life this week when I'm trying to get home sitting in traffic on I-40? Right? Traffic on I-40 isn't all that bad. Other cities have it worse. But here's what it means. Here's what it means. Two things. Christ's fulfillment of the law informs how you respond to God. So track with me here as we land. There's two groups of people in the room today. 
I'm safe to say, and, and probably all of us fit in both categories. But there's self-abusers and self-provers when it comes to the law of God. So I'll start with the first camp because it's where I find myself, self-abusers. You're the kind of person in the room that every time you have a critical word of feedback, every time someone confronts you, every time you make a mistake, you just spiral downward. You beat yourself up over it. Internally, you have this inner, inner, uh, uh, inner conversation, this inner discussion of shame. You carry shame with you. There's something you did five years ago, and you're still trying to get out from underneath the shadow, shadow of it, and you beat yourself up constantly, and you do this thinking, if I somehow do this enough, then it will be finally enough that I can now be free from it, and you find it almost virtuous that you hate yourself so much, Right? But do you know what Christ's fulfillment of the law means for the self-abuser? Stop beating yourself up. Christ was beaten up for you. He paid the penalty of a lawbreaker. He paid the penalty of a lawbreaker. Jesus, the perfect law keeper, paid the penalty of a lawbreaker so that you and I, lawbreakers, might inherit all the blessings of a lawkeeper. Right? Stop beating yourself up. On the other side, self-provers. You're the kind of people who feel much better about yourself, right? Your ducks are in a row. Um, you, your, your sort of disposition is naturally more disciplined. And so um, you, you have your day planner lined out. You know what's going to happen in five years from now. You're doing all the right things, saying all the right things, going to all the right places. You have all kinds of good deeds. And you're saying, God, I know you sent Jesus to die for me, but look what I'm doing, Right? And you feel like there's, there's always more to accomplish, always more to achieve, and your value and your worth and your whole sense of self is gained by what you're accomplishing and what you're doing, and look at it, right? But here's what Jesus says to the self-prover. I perfectly obeyed the law. You don't have to add anything anymore to have a sense of worth, Right? Because the worst thing for a self-prover is to have something pointed out that was left undone. And Jesus goes, it was left undone, and I've still fulfilled all righteousness. Right? So so here's why this matters. If you're a self-abuser, wherever you find yourself beating yourself up, is an evidence that you don't believe that the payment Jesus paid was enough. When you're still beating yourself, you're saying, yeah, Jesus, I know you did that, but I did that, and so I've got to lash myself. And he's going, stop lashing yourself. It is finished. And to the self-prover, where you still feel like you have to announce yourself and establish yourself, and everyone look at me, look at what I'm doing. I promise I'm worth it. I'm acceptable. He's going, listen, at the end of the day, there's only one good work that stands, and it's not yours. the end of the day, there's only one good work that stands, and it's not yours. It's mine, but my good work makes you to stand with me. Wherever you find yourself still trying to prove things, it's an area where you don't believe that Jesus' perfect obedience was enough, and you've got to add to it. Both groups fall in the same sin. They diminish Jesus by thinking they have to add to him. Why don't you make much of Jesus and rest in him? This has set me free. 
the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. The second way this translates to us, and here's where we'll land. Jesus' fulfillment of the law informs your obedience to him. Your obedience to him. So, so here it is, right? Jesus didn't fulfill the law for you to go, well, there's nothing left to do. Live how I want and just get grace on the backside, right? No, 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 no. I now don't have to obey Jesus to get righteousness. I'm already righteous. Now I get to walk with him and follow him in the newness of life. So now, what are your commands? They're forming me in the righteousness I've already received. So here's the thing I would mention to you. When you get around Jesus, when you quiet yourself in prayer, when you come around his scriptures, where do you feel yourself kicking? Where do you feel yourself trying to squirm? Where do you feel yourself trying to buck against him and still get your way? Wherever that is, Jesus is trying to show you. And pay attention to those places. I'm forming you in the righteousness I've already given to you. You don't have to submit here to get righteousness. Submit here because you already are. Live in that freedom. Live in that freedom, right? So again, I want to leave you with that today. Where in your life do you find yourself kicking against Jesus? Where in your life do you find yourself fighting against him as though your law is the one that matters or as though you still have to do something to get God to love you? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it.